Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 5 today. And we'll be focusing primarily on verse 3. Ezra chapter 10 verses 1 through 5. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. For the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, and the sons of, e- of the sons of Elam addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Let's pray. Our Father, open our hearts to your word this morning. And God, I pray that even through the weakness of the preacher, that your strength would be perceived. The strength of your word, the strength of your commandment, the strength of your spirit. So God, speak to us, each one of us, the message we need to hear. Speak to your church, the message we need to hear together. And so God, teach us, but even more, make us wise because we have found our wisdom in you. Because we have sought your word, we have sought your answers and not leaned merely on our own understanding. We place ourselves at the mercy of your command. And in that, we know we shall be exalted in you. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ, the righteous Lamb of God, we pray. Amen. Last week, we looked at the truth in Shechaniah's assessment of Israel and their sinful situation. And many of you, uh, if you were here last week, will recall that he expressed the truth in a paraphrase of Ezra's very prayer in chapter 9. Taking that man of God's cries and words and providing a scriptural context and analysis of the concerns that Ezra had been praying about. And you may remember the truth that he brought out in this paraphrase What the people had called marriages with idolaters were nothing of the sort. Primarily because they had not been ordained by God since their very existence violates His holy law. You recall that we looked at Jesus' definition of marriage in Mark 10.9. What God has joined together. 
And I repeat this pivotal truth this week because it is the critical piece that allows us to understand everything that happens from this point forward in Ezra. This is where it all begins to come back together. And I find it's often the case that when we allow the idolaters and their collaborators to define how we talk about certain subjects, rather than allowing the Word of God to guide our thoughts, our hearts, and our conversations, that we are led inevitably astray. The people spoke of marriage, called their arrangement with the idolaters in the land marriage. And maybe they even went through some of the same ceremonies to become, in the eyes of everyone around them, married. They ran households together. They spoke a commitment together. They had children together. Perhaps even loved one another. But none of those things makes a marriage out of an arrangement that violates the law of God. And that is a big part of the problem, isn't it? That idolaters, enemies of God, even in our own day and time, think that they are kinder, that they are wiser, that they are more loving than God, precisely because they accept immoral relationships masquerading as marriages. And they will speak of the households created. They will get teary-eyed over the children raised in these homes. They will hold up for the world to see the love between these people and then ask, what could be wrong with this arrangement? Now with that said, please allow me to clear up the intent in even bringing this up in our day. Because last week I said, and I maintain that the nearest analog we have in our day for this is the recent societal acknowledgement of homosexual unions. And that is because they violate at their very core the law of God. And that makes them invalid at the most fundamental level. But along with that, I would include those who choose to live together outside of marriage. Because this is the very arrangement that Shechaniah is describing by the words he chooses. Both of these arrangements are sinful and there is nothing at all that reduces their sinfulness. Not the fact that they love each other. Not even their unimpeachable character. Not the presence of children in the home. Sin is sin and there is nothing that can make it otherwise. But I want you to hear this. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. Pagans can do whatever they like. They sin with impunity. They stand as enemies of God. A pagan or idolater sinning or twisting the Word of God for their own purposes should surprise us less than when a dog barks or when a wolf howls. Sinners sin because they are sinners. Rebels rebel because they're in rebellion. It's their nature. And indeed, it was our nature before we were called to Jesus Christ. And so we have compassion as well. 1 Corinthians 6 
verses 9 through 11 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. And so in mentioning this this morning, I'm decidedly not merely standing here condemning the world for being sinful. We expect the world to be sinful. The place that concerns me when we have sin, when we walk alongside sinners and agree with their assessments of things, is when it happens from God's people. That is the concern. Because the world has already been judged. John 3.18 says, He who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The message this morning for those who find themselves as enemies of God and who recognize their hopelessness and goodlessness as they stand before God is simple. It is that even though your sins have been rightly condemned, God has made a way through Jesus Christ alone to by faith take on the goodness of the only begotten Son of God. And in exchange, He will take all your sinfulness upon Himself, having paid for that sin by receiving God's wrath in full on the cross. He received God's wrath for your sin and joins you with Himself forever, covering you with His goodness if you will come to Him. That is the good news. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And He has provided salvation for all who believe. But Christian, my reason in bringing all this up for us is that too many in what is called the church, have bought into the world's lies and are committing the same sin as the Jews in Ezra's day. They're joining themselves with idolaters for their own personal benefit. We buy their argument. We, we parrot their explanation. We endorse their sinfulness. But in doing so, we push them farther from the gospel of Jesus Christ. All the while proclaiming our great love for them. The message of Shechaniah in our text today is also found in James chapter 4, verse 4, where James says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, am I saying you shouldn't have friends that you're trying to lead to Christ? No. But be sure they're not leading you away from Christ. Christian, if you are God's and you would please Him, let your understanding grow by seeing things through His Word. 
Not buying the arguments that are pelted at us from the news media, from all the sources, social media, and even the people who are closest to us. Allow your mind to be trained by constant exposure to God's wisdom in His Scripture that He has graciously given to us. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 22, says, In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which is the likeness of God, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The Bible has everything we need to know for life and for godliness. Do you want to know how to please God? It's all there. It's all in the Scripture. But our greatest errors are caused fundamentally by our ignorance of what the Scripture says or our failure to put it into practice. And so please don't hear this message this morning about how the world needs to clean up its act. It's not the job of the Christian. It is not the job of the church to convert the world to God's way of thinking. That's the law. By very definition, that is the law. It is not ours to debate endlessly about the sinfulness of the world or society or the country. Ezra's heart wasn't broken for the plight of the multitude of idolaters in the land. It was broken for those of God's people who had aligned with them. Shechaniah's concern was not for those who had never bowed the knee to Yahweh. He was concerned solely for God's people and that they come out from among them. When Paul preached to the pagans, idolaters in the Areopagus of Athens, his message wasn't focused on all their sins, but on the one true God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He took them the gospel. It is the job of the church and the members of the church to convert sinners into saints through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. It is our calling, it is our mission to bring them face to face with the gospel and call them to decision. Only then can they through the Holy Spirit deal properly and decisively with their sin. Certainly, to respond to the gospel, a person must know their sin and their guilt. But your opinion, even if it's informed by Scripture, will not convict them. Bring them directly to the Scripture and invite them to look at the holiness of God. That is the greatest conviction we can provide. How many, and through the Scriptures, when faced with the holiness of God, fell on their face and declared themselves polluted, sinful, hopeless, except by the grace of God.
And so with those remaining points from last week, let's take the remainder of our time today to move forward to verse 3 and look at the proposal that Shechaniah brings forward. Verse 3 says, Therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. With our remaining time together, I'd like to look briefly at the three key parts of this proposal. The first thing I'd like to look at is when he says, let us put away all these wives and their children. That's the nut of it, isn't it? That's the kernel. That is the middle part. That is what terrified me about preaching through Ezra when I began. But separating these arrangements is really the only way to repent, to turn from this sin. And understanding how God views these arrangements helps us understand why this is the only possibility. Should they remain in these relationships, they would have continued to spurn God's law and invite God's judgment. As long as these people continued to live in this sin, they would be drawn further from God. We've seen it happen before. Nehemiah 13.26 actually somewhat quotes 1 Kings when it says, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these very things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Those many wives of alliances, as he aligned himself with the pagans of this world and made himself powerful, pulled his heart away from God. Now, I understand how harsh it sounds. I know how painful it could be for these families who had been living together to be broken up. No doubt there were loving and caring relationships, but they needed to be permanently severed. Permanently separating from wives and what it literally says, those who were born to them. We see the word children translating it in many of our translations. And so we think automatically of a minor child, a baby being sent away. But this would include grown children and stepchildren as well. But God shares supremacy with no one. Not even the members of our family. Matthew 10.37 says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is not saying we shouldn't love one another. He is saying for the follower of Jesus Christ, the love that we have for everyone else must grow out of our love for Him first. 
Otherwise, we make an idol out of that person in our hearts. But if you're scanning through your scripture today, I do want you to notice that there are many other verses in chapter 10. This is not the last word we hear of this. And the verses that are left in chapter 10 detail the investigation of these marriages. Now you may ask yourself, what in the world were they investigating? And I would say primarily, they were seeking to determine whether the person from the idolaters was truly an idolater or had, like Ruth, forsaken the gods of her people and followed Yahweh alone. That is the purpose of the rest of this chapter. And like I have repeatedly tried to reinforce, this has nothing to do with racism or ethnicity, although even to this day they're accused of it. Only those who were found to be living with someone who maintained their idolatry, who remained foreign, were commanded to put their wife away. For many people today, particularly new believers, there are associations, even people that we love, that represent the same danger in drawing us away from God. Those who were for years our partner in sin will continue to influence us more strongly than they should. And we run the risk of being pulled away from following Christ. Young ladies, young men, if you're dating someone who doesn't love Jesus Christ more than you, Dump them. They will only draw you away from Christ. It is not enough that they attend church. It's not enough that they attend church regularly. If they don't love Jesus, if they can't withstand even a minor questioning about their relationship with Jesus, they are not for you. Even if you think they're cute, even if you really like their smile, even if you think they might be the one, if they don't love Jesus, they're not for you. Let me say it a little bit more strongly. They are not God's one for you. The second thing I'd like to look at is let it be done according to the law. If someone told you that, I'm going to deal with you according to the law, it might even send shivers up your spine. But this is a really interesting case. What Shechaniah is recommending, I believe, and he's doing it by the leadership of the Holy Spirit, is that those who separate, treat this as if it were a lawful divorce. I know it may sound strange. Does that make it a double standard? 
nothing of the sort. It means that those who who are turned out of the houses of the faithful are done so with all the grace and kindness that the law allows. And that they would have no valid complaint that they were treated unfairly. In this case, the law is gracious. The two most important aspects of the law were this. Number one, that the divorced wife was given a certificate of divorce. And the second, that the man who divorced her could never remarry her. Both of these things are found in Deuteronomy 24. Regarding the certificate of the divorce, Deuteronomy 24.1 says, He writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. They didn't deserve that because the marriage was never legitimate. And yet, the recommendation here is that they follow a gracious course through the law. And it was important because otherwise, the woman who was put out could be accused of simply being a harlot. We did see last week that was the status that she had under the law because she was an idolater in an illegitimate marriage. But in giving her the certificate of divorce, she was treated with grace better than her standing before God deserves. That's glorious. That's kind. She was free to remarry or to return to her father's household. She did not carry with her the stigma or the status of a prostitute. So even in this action, those who were separated were separated with gentleness and care. And perhaps the kindness of God and the gentleness of His people would bring her to repentance from her idolatry. The second, regarding remarriage. For those thus separated, they could never return to resume their former position. Deuteronomy 24.4 says her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And so these wives who were sent away, particularly if they had married another of their people in that short term, could never return to their former husband. These are the two most important things about doing this according to the law. It protected both the woman and the man. And then finally, let us make a covenant to that effect. I plan God willing to deal with the Scripture's teaching on covenants and marriage in the coming weeks. For today, let's look at exactly what Shechaniah is proposing. A covenant among the faithful. A covenant with God. Now you may ask, why was a covenant needed? Why would they have to make a covenant among themselves and God to do what God had commanded? And I think it's primarily because they were serious. And the work was hard. 
There are sins that are so deeply embedded that we cannot hope to emerge from them without help. Breaking these relationships, even though it was the right thing to do, are going to be painful. They're going to be difficult. And it would require far more than good intentions or even giving their best try. They were living in a ruinous state of sin. And they were facing the impending wrath of God. For them, failure was not an option. It really never is an option with sin. But we often treat sin like it is. We proclaim, I'll try to do better. Or maybe we even soften it to, I'll see what I can do. But it is truly a rare thing when our good intentions accomplish anything of value. Sometimes, far more than we admit, besetting sin requires a great, greater measure to defeat than even repentance. Shechaniah could have simply suggested that they proclaim a fast. Proclaim a day of repentance. Bring everybody in. Have a prayer meeting. But he didn't. These things work, don't get me wrong. But this situation needed stronger measures. This sin must be dealt with decisively because it had spread like a pandemic among God's people. And so this covenant, not to be confused with a theological covenant, I plan to explain the difference in the future if God wills, the full efforts of the people would be to remove the sin from their lives and to hold each other accountable to remove it from their lives. That is a much bigger step than to repent, even in tears. In binding themselves together in this covenant, they would be ensuring the necessary actions were truly taken. And also that they were done in the right and kind and gentle way. And everyone knew they would be held responsible through it all. We have in the church left that behind over the last century or two. When we bought the lie that private, personal devotion to God would not be reflected in our lives, would not be reflected in our words, or would not be reflected in our actions. When we shrugged our shoulders and said, everybody sins. Many, perhaps all of us will face dark days ahead. We will face temptations and some may fall to devastating sins. And we, the church, are the very definition of the covenant community that Shechaniah is recommending right here in the book of Ezra. We are in a covenant together to do the very things that he is calling the Jews to do together. To encourage one another to love and to good works. To pray for each other. To support one another. To watch over each other. Until the day when our Lord returns to bring 
us to Himself forever. This covenant community that Shechaniah recommends is the community that God's church is now. We need each other. That is why the Scripture tells us to confess your sins to one another. That is why the Scripture tells us to build each other up. That is why the Scripture tells us to bear one another's burdens. That is why the Scripture tells us to pray without ceasing. Because we are this very covenant community. Let's pray. Our Father, what Shechaniah saw in a glass darkly, you have revealed through your only Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And you have delivered through your Holy Spirit You don't simply stand and command us to be holy. You give us your Holy Spirit to make us so. You don't simply say, do this. You give us the capability through your Spirit to follow. God, there is not anything that we need that You did not foresee. There is not anything we need to be godly that You have not provided. You have called us. You have justified us. You have sanctified us and You continue to do so. You have brought us to repentance and You have given us the righteousness of Christ. Your wrath is not poured out against your people, but has been satisfied by the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ. God, grow us together. We begin as individuals But God, grow us together as a church. Growing together. Being together. Being part of the same temple that you are building for your Holy Spirit. We together are being built up. And so God, we support each other. Help us to support each other more. It is in the holy name of Jesus Christ who sits forever at your right hand offering prayers for the saints that we pray. Amen.